with a grin, risking head escape. If we're behind, then never mind. We'll fight and fight and win. Oh, we're from Tigerland. We never weaken till the final siren's gone. Like the tiger of old, the star and And welcome to another episode of Lily High on Life with a special guest, Michael Naftali. Michael, welcome and thank you for that opening song. Thank you. It's uh, an important song, important in our life. Well, I was surprised when I saw it as one of your favourites and I'm assuming it holds wonderful memories for you. Yeah, well, wonderful and sad. Uh, I sometimes do wonder why I can get so excited and so upset, so emotional about a bunch of men running around chasing ball who happen to be wearing these set of colours rather than that, but but I do. Uh, I think one of my earliest memories uh, is with my uncle, my uncle Phil, who is responsible for me and all our family back in Richmond because uh, when I was born he was about 20 years old and he convinced me, attached to the chagrin of my late father, who had been born and grown up in Carlton, that uh, we should be Richmond supporters. I do remember going to the old South Melbourne football ground with him. it must have been a public holiday and Richmond who was not very good but okay was playing South Melbourne who were the bottom and we were definitely going to win uh, I was seven or eight years old I remember we lost and I remember crying it was a very sad memory and uh, and you stuck with them anyway yeah, echoed some years later I our older um, our older my our oldest son and his wife and three children live in Hong Kong don't see many games of football but uh, when they were here a few years ago Elijah their oldest uh, who was about eight at the time Richmond was playing Fremantle they were ahead all day lost and he lay on the floor and cried and I couldn't remember really work out whether I was happy that he was crying because he was so intense about football or sad for him but he did bring back that memory did you tell him about I, your I did, crying I did episode? I did uh, and the other great memory is a couple of years ago 2017 uh, we were actually in Hong Kong on our way to Israel. Uh, the grand final, which Richmond won, was on Yom Kippur. And in a sense, it was good because when we got home from Shul, we had no idea. We had a total press blackout and we watched it as if live. Uh, so that was a great high, again, with children, grandchildren. So uh, it is, uh, it's almost a religious experience in a way. It is. I have a lot of religious friends who um, have experienced their teams winning or losing in the same way on a grand final. I, now, I've got some very, very, very observant friends who on that day told me that they, because if you leave in Melbourne, if you walk through the streets, you're going to know who won. So they didn't, after Mincha, after, after uh, Musaf, they didn't go back to Shul and they dovened at home by themselves so they didn't see anything in the street and then as soon as Yom Kippur was out, they could watch it and not know the results. So yeah, it is, uh, it gets, generates a lot of intensity, a lot of intense thought. And a lot of emotion, which is lovely too. Now, for those people out there that don't know Michael Naftali or have never heard of Michael Naftali, um, as you know, I don't just have people on this program and interview them because they've done wonderful and amazing things for 
for others or in their lives or careers. Now, Michael has done all of that. He's been extremely successful from humble beginnings as well, um, but has made a, a really big difference, not just in the Jewish community, but in Australia at large and overseas. Um, he's, uh, uh, he's helped a lot of companies. He's been in the financial arena and he's been able to do some really amazing things. But the reason I've invited Michael on for this interview is because even though he's managed to achieve so much, he's still a really good down-to-earth guy, what we would call a mensch. He's somebody that you can relate to, somebody who you can talk to, somebody who's had ups and downs, but who's basically a very high on life person I, so. I just worked out why I came on this program that's just wonderful I, uh, I guess it's almost like being at your own funeral it was fantastic <laughs> Well, you see, there are so many people out there who don't think enough of themselves. And I think even with your accomplishments, you may have a little bit of that syndrome as well, in that you really, people need to celebrate themselves. So that's what you're here for. Tell me about the Ark Synagogue that you and another great friend of mine, David Mandel, started together. How did all of that happen? Well, first of all, I, I, I won't get out of here alive if I don't say there are actually three of us. Okay. Uh, Lionel Krongold, uh, who many people do know, well known in the community, David Mandel and I. Uh, and it's actually the Ark Centre, where the concept is to have uh, a centre with a, a shul in the middle. Um, but why was it your responsibility to do this? Oh, uh, there's a few reasons. I just want to go back, if I may. Please. You talked about humble beginnings, and yeah, we didn't grow up with a lot, but. Uh, one of the things I think I actually learned from the, the initial rabbi uh, at the Ark Center, Schneer at Wax, s- talking to people who said um, they're atheists, they don't believe in God. And his response was, you know, that's a bit hard to have a serious debate about there is or isn't a God, but just think about the three main things that impact on your life, where you're born, when you're born, and to whom you're born. And if you don't get at least two of those right, you're really going to struggle. And you can be born in the wrong place, perhaps in Russia, but it's a good time, good parents. If you get all three right, as I did, um, it's the jackpot. So while the beginnings weren't particularly uh, lavish in terms of, you know, we weren't poor, but we weren't particularly wealthy, uh, born the right time, born the right place, and born to, to loving, positive parents. And I think in many ways that's the, the best uh, background you can have. What was that, your parents' background in terms of well, I'm many generations from? Australian. Three of my grandparents were born in Australia. The other one was born in New Zealand. His mother was born in New Zealand. Uh, six of my eight great-grandparents were born either Australia or England uh, and two from Europe, but they came here in the 1870s and 80s, so very very Anglo background. Right. Uh, so just remembering the question was about the Ark Centre, which I'm very happy to talk about. Uh, that group of us, and it wasn't only the three of us, but we were the three, Lionel, David, and I were the th- main instigators, uh, realised we all had been uh, for many years uh, at Kew, grown up in Kew, lived in Kew, been near Kew, uh, and the community was moving, uh, and that synagogue was dying. It still limps along, but it's got a very small catchment area, and it's not a very profound thought to think that you put a shul, a Jewish centre, where Jews live, not where they don't live. And around the Ark, which around Bialik, and we're contiguous with Bialik, uh, there are a lot of Jewish people. Uh, 
and it's actually in many areas and in that area as, as densely settled as you know what the Borscht Belt, the ghetto as it's called. Uh, but they are not people from the nature of where they live and going to Bialik and so on who are strictly observant, regularly observant. Uh, and they're people who, obviously because they live in the area because they're going to Bialik, are interested in being Jewish, but not necessarily in the normal, you know, davening every day and uh, normal Shabbos and Yontavs. They weren't, they weren't, but they weren't Israeli people, they weren't mainstream Orthodox people, but there's a good saying I heard from somebody once that the shul they didn't go to had to be an Orthodox shul. <laughs> uh, so we are obviously in the extreme of Orthodoxy. Those people who've been there will know it's men and women sit on the same level. There's a mechitza, it's not a very high mechitza. Uh, but uh, we felt that there was a need, and uh, we've fortunately been justified, like any startup. And my other great passion in life at the moment is my son Paul's venture capital startup. I'll get onto that. Uh, but uh, like any startup, we have our ups and downs. Friday nights are usually very strong. And one of the great things that uh, Lionel and David and I talk about is that uh, there's 70, 80, 100 people there, for, of whom, if there wasn't for the Ark Centre, maybe a handful would go to shul on a Friday night. The other great thing is in the late days at QE we with the youngsters. Now we're far the oldest in the room. So it's filling a need. Uh, and it's, and it's you know, Shabbos mornings are not as much. Yontavs are bigger. And you know, Tish above, we had, uh, I think, 50 or 60 on for Tick on Lael. On, on uh, morning, there were even more. Uh, Shavuot, Shavuot yes. was, was big. So, you know, Tish above, we had a lot of people. So it's it's developing. And if I could just say that it really is such a welcoming shul. We've had uh, the rabbi on a number of times, uh, once to talk about the shul itself, once as uh, to talk about the musical accomplishments of the choir. And it's a very welcoming I mean, sure, I've gone there on my own, thinking that I'd see you or David there. If I went on my own, it would be fine. And even times when you guys weren't there, I just really felt welcomed by the rabbi, the rabbits, and other people there. Oh. So it's it's just one of oh. those nice places. Thank you, Lily. We certainly hope so. And you know, you wouldn't expect me to say anything else than I don't know how many people are listening, but you're all welcome. We'd like to welcome more people regularly, and uh, no, it's enjoyable. It has its ups and downs. And uh, the service on Fridays is always at 6 always o'clock. Always at 6 o'clock. In the summer, we can't bring easier. in Shabbos in winter, it, but it's, it's the ideal time. And uh, unlike many congregations, we start about quarter to six, and uh, we don't necessarily uh, put a lot of emphasis for many of the people. I shouldn't say this on the davening. Of course, we do the Shabbos, uh, Kabbalah Shabbat. Uh, but uh, we do put a lot of emphasis on eating and drinking. Uh, yes, you've got your own chef. We That's have our own chef who is outstanding <laughs> and, and does catering for anyone who's you interested in that too. You understand the Jewish people. Oh, right. <laughs> a good well, when we started, that was one of the things that uh, Schneer Wax, who was the rabbi and is still involved in, in the music, as you just said, he said, well, you know, what do people want? People go out all the time. Where do they go? They go out for f- to f- meet their friends for food, for drink, for music. 
So let's replicate that in, in a Jewish environment. And that's, in, in essence, what the ark is. And I love the fact that the three of you saw a need and instead of just talking about it, instead of clutching about it, you actually went about actually doing something about it. Now, you retired earlier this year. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I, I didn't. was getting to the part. <laughs> Tell us about this okay, wonderful uh, company and how your sons have made you proud and well, how you now uh, so work with them. What I, uh, in terms of background, we, my partner and I, uh, started a company about uh, 1997 and about uh, 10 or 11 years later we sold it to Credit Suisse and uh, in June 30 this year I retired from Credit Suisse having stayed on for all that time but I'm still on a bunch of private company boards obviously not for profit work so when people talk about retired I, I just gave up one of the many things I do the thing I'm spending a lot of the time on uh, now is uh, with our second son Paul who has a venture capital fund Rampersand if you haven't invested you should it's not too late uh, but, uh, give us the website <laughs> you know, Rampersand www.rampersand yeah, no, uh, no, you've got to spell Rampersand it's like ampersand with an R in front uh, and it's, 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 I'm enjoying it I he, it's all in um, internet communications technology. Uh, technology. I don't understand any of it. Uh, I've learned a lot. I understand something about the structuring and the deal doing, and it's just enjoyable. One of the great things I've spent a life in family business. Some work when they work when it works well, it's the best. But as you know from many many terrible stories over many years in many countries it sometimes doesn't one of the great benefits i've got is working with my son in a situation where it's never son in the good old days when i ran it i was so much better because i didn't it's his business i'm always delighted when he asks me some advice uh, and it's uh, and I'm learning a lot. So it's it's are they it's different good. issues? Are they di- are they different challenges uh, with what you were doing with what he's finding? In essence, not. You know, all this is going to sound very motherhood, and forgive me for sounding a bit lecturing, but all forms of human endeavour are the same: profit, start up, early stage, late stage social families it's about getting a bunch of people to work harmoniously together for the common good now that sounds very basic but it's true if you think of anything that you do that's about what it is in business in in large companies they're different to small companies but in essence it's the same issue how to get an alignment of interest that people work for the common good when issues arise how do you resolve them respectfully one of my uh, favorite sayings is uh, it's important to be honest but you don't have to be brutally honest you can be sensitively honest you can say that looks terrible or you can say you know it looks a bit better if you wore a blue dress not a green dress you can say the same thing you just don't have to be brutal so it's, it's always the same family business large business small from business being brutal no uh i've seen people be brutal no i think i uh it's probably one of the things my mother, who is the most positive person I've ever met, have often said, you know, people talk about half glasses being half full and it didn't need to be anything in the glass for my mother to be terribly positive. And, uh, and she's so still with you. She she's is still. She's 95. She's uh, getting older, naturally. Uh, but she's good and, and positive and still positive and still grateful for every day. Uh, so I think I learned a lot from that. So 
I'm sure I've done, you know, look, we've all done things we're ashamed of. Yes, I've been harsher than I should have at times. But in essence, I learned from her and from a lot of positive experience. Yeah, it's much better to encourage me, you know, the carrot rather of than course, the stick of type course. comment. Michael, what did it feel like for you or inside when you realised that your son was going into a similar field or a similar business? Uh, well, my oldest son did law and has always been very much involved in a similar area of activity and uh, all the kids while they were students worked with me Uh, and it's delightful to see them start their own businesses David it's interesting going off on a tangent in Hong Kong at the moment Uh, and he and his wife and their three children will be coming back probably in the next 18 months they're building not far from the Ark Centre Uh, but uh, obviously Hong Kong is a very difficult situation but he started his own business a trustee business having a law background Uh, and it is a delight that they follow similar things but very different uh, very very different approaches to the world the whole point about complementary skills they do work together and our daughter uh, who turned 40 yesterday. I'm sure she's listening. <laughs> Happy birthday, Lisa. Uh, Happy birthday, Lisa. And uh, she's the general manager of the Arc Centre, uh, which uh, it's actually interesting that, Lily, initially a number of people thought uh, the appointment was because of uh, nepotism, uh, and they very quickly realised it wasn't. And uh, she, obviously together with Schneer and Lisa and now Mushka and Gabby, uh, uh, the rabbis and the rabbits have... Um, but she's been very, very heavily responsible for the success and uh, Lionel and David and I lean on her very heavily. Um, so do you regularly come in and help Paul or is it a he gives you a call when he needs you sort of thing? So the, the real answer to that question is yes. <laughs> uh, I go, now I don't have an office in the city and he's in Cremorne, which is a very trendy area. I didn't realise how trendy I'd become uh, going there and not putting on tie and, and so on. Uh, yeah, I spend a reasonable amount of time there, but yes, it's the greatest delight when he calls and asks me for advice. It's fantastic. <laughs> uh, Michael, you um, when you started out, you worked for a bank, you worked for the Pratt organisation, um, you were in jobs and then you went out on your own and did consulting what's the what's the biggest difference was that a um something that was planned or did all of that happen organically it's interesting switch from a from a job to your own business i was very fortunate uh, in that after I think it was 16 or 17 years with working closely with Richard Pratt. Uh, we reached an agreement that I'd spend half my time working for him and half doing other things. Uh, and I didn't know what that would be. And uh, I was very fortunate I had the world's best salesman as the marketing manager who was Richard saying, if anyone come and talk to me about an issue, I'll go and talk to Michael. And people thought, you know, Pratt was doing well and I must have had some influence. And so I, I gathered this business. So I didn't ever really make the decision to go out and start something. He, in a sense, underwrote by paying me half what I was getting paid anyway, and the other things developed. So uh, he, th- he cut your salary in half and mm. forced you to go out on No, no, or? it was by agreement. In fact, it was time. Uh, I think one of the things, and it's true of communal organisations, which we might come back to later if there's time, that people stay doing the same thing too long. 
uh, and they see themselves and the organisations as one when they're not. The, the organisation, particularly communal organisations, have a communal responsibility in succession planning, which is spoken about a great deal but often isn't practised, uh, is needs a lot more focus. But anyway, so it was time. We reached agreement uh, and... So half the time, half the salary, and, and that worked out well. Along the way, I met David Beatty, who was a partner at Arthur Anderson, uh, and he was in the process of leaving Arthur Anderson before it imploded, and uh, we just drifted into having a small corporate advisory business, and all of a sudden we had a lot of uh, work, and then all of a sudden Credit Suisse wanted to buy it, and here we wow. are. Just the interesting thing about David Beatty is uh, I hadn't known David. I met him, and uh, what I realized after a while is that, well, he's quite an observant Catholic, a very large proportion of his uh, clients were, were Jews. He's, I think he's, I often said he'd been to more Bitsvers than I had, but... Uh, <laughs> We were talking about a particular investment opportunity one day, and he said, who are we going to take it to? And he listed all these people. I said, you haven't got any Gentiles on the list. He said, no, I don't really deal with Gentiles. <laughs> so I often said, the only difference between David and me was I'd, I do deal with Gentiles. He didn't. It was <laughs> amazing. And, and we still remain friends and, in some That's sense, as partners story. to this day. Is, uh, and is a wonderful you know, man. Michael, one of the, the underlying reasons for this program, too, and the, the way I... I try to interview you or the things I'm asking you is because there are so many people who have been doing the same thing over and over again, getting the same results over and over again, and yet they it's not bad enough. They'll complain, but it's not bad enough to do something different. So seeing that people have made changes and those changes have been mm. positive is a good thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I think, as I said before, I see I, too many communal organisations where I think people stay too long. In fact, David and Lionel and I are keen. It's nearly 10 years since ARC started. We're still interested, involved uh, in every which way, but trying. we've got a much more active board now. We've got more people doing things, handing over responsibilities. It's important. Uh, I see it. It's it's a different point, but uh, when David, our son David, who lives in Hong Kong, was talking about this the other day, that you know, people in Hong Kong are facing this same situation. They've been doing the same thing and hoping that nothing bad would happen. Clearly, bad things are happening. People tend to wait too long, and you know, there's obviously terrible, terrible examples of you know, the Holocaust always brings us to mind in this context. But terrible examples of people just, as you say, they do the same thing every day and hope that by doing it somehow they'll get a different result, and they don't. Uh, so it is important. It's, I think, one of the, and you see it in the venture capital area. These are people who've thought of new ways of doing things and you know the saying that uh, the biggest transport company in the world doesn't have any cars uber and the biggest accommodation airbnb doesn't own any hotel rooms uh, so there's doing different things in different ways is, is, is the key to progress and you know obviously in medicine uh, so it's it's Obviously discomforting, but it's very important. The tagline for the show is change your attitude, change your life. <laughs> and that's very, it's the way you look at things. That, uh, that really goes... It so is true. It is. Yeah, you, you, we all know the story. Two people looking at the same thing, seeing completely different things. Absolutely. So uh, Credit Suisse came to you uh, yes. and offered to buy your business. Yes. Gosh, what, what did you come home and tell your wife when that happened? Oh, I don't remember exactly, but <laughs> I do remember they walked in 
uh, Credit Suisse is in its essence a private bank and, and, a, mm. and a wonderful private bank uh, and, and a really large understands international a large bank. international bank understands private banking which Australian institutions I think I can say with the, with the possible exception of Macquarie Bank really don't understand uh, and they hadn't been a private bank in Australia had a, an investment banking presence and they looked around and thought how do we grow it more quickly than just hiring a few people and they thought because of our practice well it's a great compliment to you and um, and, and David, your partner yeah. and David it, so yeah. how did it was just nothing that fe- what did that feel like and how did it change your life it changed well the first and thing and was it a definite yes it was a definite yes uh it was. They came to see us in two thousand and eight, and we sold in two thousand and nine. Might be a year out, two thousand seven. We sold. We actually sold three or four months before the GFC. A masterpiece of brilliant timing. I'd like to say it was great uh, foresight. It wasn't really, but we'd had good years, and you know, biblically, seven fat years, seven lean. We knew that things wouldn't continue to be so good for forever. We didn't have any idea of how bad things would become. Uh, but it was quite clear within six or eight months our business, like any other business in that area, was unsaleable. Uh, so it was. We knew the time was right. You know, timing is the most important thing, which is of all the many Richard Pratt sayings, my favourite one. Timing isn't the most important thing; it's the only thing. Uh, and the other thing is, it's it's a fundamentally different. You asked before about it, your own business. I mean, there you're responsible for the people, you're responsible for the financiers. So I think for the first three months after we sold, I slept eight or ten hours a day all the tension flowed out uh it uh, it's it, it was just a very different experience uh, was it uh, was it so it was stressful before i didn't then, realize uh, it was stressful really, but it's only uh, you know what it's like when you when you are stressed you don't actually necessarily realize it yeah. once it goes then you realize it yeah so what was that feeling of releasing stress because that's big for a lot of people yeah like once, so once you, you you made the sale, it had gone through. You were sleeping better. How did that change your attitude to life, not just to business, but to life generally? I don't know that it did. Uh, I was still locked. We were still locked in for three years on and out, so it wasn't a complete one hundred and eighty degree change. Uh, I guess it gave more time. It's probably not a coincidence that it was around that time that we started the Arc Centre or started to think about starting okay. the Arc Centre, yep. which I hadn't thought about that before, but it's probably relevant. I had more time and emotion uh, to, to put into it. Uh, Lionel sold a business around that time, uh, so it was relevant. And Your dad was still around? No, then? dad died in 1990. Okay. So he but got to fa- see a lot of your success. Yeah, yeah. But now my father-in-law's... Um, more of an influence on that. Uh, actually, my involvement with the JNF uh, began, I remember it was called Nidra in 1993, I think. Something had happened, and he said, Well, you're going to have more time now, you better get involved with JNF. It was called Nidra. I was standing sure next to my father in law, who had been the federal treasurer, was, I think, at the time, still the federal treasurer. Uh, so he, and he was. Almost to the day he died, used to come to uh, Ark on on Shabbos morning, so he saw a lot of that. But now, Dad, that's a tragedy that uh, he he was he basically he got very very ill, had a major stroke uh, a week or so before David, our oldest son's bar mitzvah. So, one of the joys, and I think about this a lot, is all the things that my mother has seen, uh, all the weddings and bar mitzvahs and great grandchildren. Before, uh, yeah. Bar so he he was. Um, 
he, he was, and he didn't ever recover. So he was. Uh, so he no, he didn't see any of that. But thank God, Mum did. Mum has continues to. Yes, let's play another piece of music here, which is really appropriate as we're talking about your dad. Precious teaching, do I give you? Never forsake my Torah. It is a tree of life for those who grasp it, and all who uphold it are blessed. Its ways are pleasantness, and its paths are peace. Help us turn to you, and we shall return. Renew our lives as in days of old. Welcome back to Lily High on Life with Michael Naftali. Michael, that's a beautiful piece of music. Do you want to tell us a little more about it and why you chose it? Uh, it's obviously fundamental to every yontov, but every Shabbos morning service. I think it's uh, it's a nice piece of music. It's visually interesting in that it's sung while the uh, Torah is being returned so the, the Torah is there the oak is opened in most shuls uh, there's the silverware it's it's quite elaborate uh, and the uh, 
the basic teaching is is the essence or part of the essence of Judaism. It's you know uh, not so much oh, two aspects: the the tree of life, the strength, and it talks about the paths of righteousness. So it's not a stagnant thing; it's the path. The pleasant paths of path of righteousness, paths of peace, and, uh, and I think in essence, those two elements of Judaism are important. The history, you know, the, we read from the same Torah for thousands, three thousand years, uh, and if you don't know where you came from, you don't know who you are, you don't really have a compass as to where you're going. But it is, it is. So that's the first element. It's it's the core. Uh, but it does. To that piece of music talks about the paths. It's mm. not static. It's not the. It's there, and I know there's. This is a very deep topic, and there are some who wouldn't particularly relate to it in this way. But I think the fact that it talks about the paths uh, is a very important message, a very important fundamental point of Judaism. We are do some very different things. We have different attitudes. Uh, the Torah was in its time the most advanced social document. Even even the slaves had a day off a week. Women had rights. Compare it to those tribal areas today. So it was a very advanced social document. Our job is to keep advancing and keep having that sort of attitude. Have you um, have you become a little more? observant, a little more reflective as you've gotten older and was there also a change once you lost your father? Uh, the answer to the last question is not really, uh, not a fundamental change. Uh, it's been a slow drift. Yes, I have become more observant. I think part of it uh, there's that saying about uh, it's not that the Jews kept Shabbat, Shabbat kept the Jews. To, uh, 20 odd years ago when I started to turn off my phone not read emails not do any work for you know the from Shabbos you know for 25 hours uh, it really was it's very I very it's very relaxing it, it's, it's what led it to that commitment what, what was there an I, I event don't know that were there you was thinking an event. about I think it was a drift uh, the boys by mitzvahs I enjoyed that break um, went to shul with them and they're 17 months apart, so it was really a continuous process for, for three years. And I found I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the break. I, I used to say, you know, the break's good. Sometimes I, I sit in shul, sometimes I daven, sometimes I think, sometimes I daydream. But the fact is it was a break. And it was just, and that break, and I think you said before, when you asked about people just doing the same things and doing it, you do need to have a break. Uh, you need to have that reflective time. And if you're constantly doing, you're not thinking. Michael, do you think that part of it is also, at that time, you started to feel comfortable in terms of um, safe and comfortable financially as well as within your relationships and that gave you that extra dimension to just breathe and take on this spirituality? I don't know how to answer the question. I, I could sort of ramble a lot and not make a lot of sense. I don't know. It, it I, I can't let put me it, tell you, know, you the reason I one ask. One, one to one relationships. This happened, therefore, I don't think it was any one thing. It was a, it was a series of things. It was a, yes, relationships. Uh, I don't think financial had a lot to do with it. Maybe it did, but I just don't think it's a a, a cap happened and therefore mm. be followed. I don't think it's the reason I like ask that. is because 
I have more than a handful of friends who have done the same thing. They've never been religious. They've even grown up in a no shul at all or a reform synagogue. And they've sort of become more... um, not so much religious, but just more reflective in their lives. They find a certain amount of peace and tranquility and something that they don't have in other places. But in uh, And so they've mm. taken on Shabbat, as you say, where they actually walk to synagogue. They don't listen. Uh, they don't turn on TVs and, mm. and electronic things. And it's a kind of peace. But it also requires a peace of mind where you're in a relationship that you're happy with. And I've only just met your wife, who seems just lovely. Well, we're getting to know each other. It's uh, <laughs> 49 years in next week. Yeah. Oh, gosh, 49. Mm. Muzzle top. Mm. Muzzle top. That really is, is huge. Mm. I don't know. I, I mean, it's an interesting thought. I don't really know how to respond to it. I don't know... Uh, and as I say, I don't think it's a one-to-one thing. I would make the different, the distinction, and you, you talked about religion, you talked about observance, and I think you said it right. And actually, Rabbi Riskin, who I've been fortunate enough, the chief rabbi of Afratu, uh, is very sure, I think it's fair to say a giant of modern orthodoxy I've been fortunate enough to spend some time with, has made the point that he, he knows uh, some very, very observant people that he doesn't think are very religious, and he knows some very, very religious people who don't observe a great deal at all. And you need to make that distinction. Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. Is, so I have become more observant. Have I become more religious? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. No, but it's that it's that peace and respect for the religion you were born into that is the most important. Yes, yes. And so in your home, as you were growing up, you weren't religious. We always had uh, always had Kiddush on Friday night. My parents didn't keep kosher. My grandparents, aunt and uncle, we were very close to. All the Yom Tovim, uh, no, not shul regularly. Um, so, yeah. Michael, if I but could I, did, I do have very orthodox forebears, so maybe it's something in the DNA. I think it's in the DNA somewhere. I definitely do. And sometimes non-Jews are so Jewish because I believe there's a DNA mm-hmm. component where yes. where it skips generations also. If it's really easy to celebrate and be upbeat when things are going well and you have many, many milestones. Mm-hmm. You've helped so many businesses. You've create, helped create businesses. Um, and I did want to spend some time on that, but we're not going to have time to actually take some examples that I was going to ask you about. But where I would like to go um, in the time we've got left is... How do you deal with and how do you cope with things that are not um, that are not that great? You know, sort of um, health health issues with people that are close to you um, when those sorts of things happen. What is it that gets you through those? What are your hmm. feelings? Well, I'm, I'm, uh my wife would certainly test the fact I'm a great warrior. Uh, so when it's a problem for health, it's obviously not something you can do a great deal about, but I certainly worry the problem uh, to death, actually, to, to keep thinking about it. Uh, I don't... I don't... I haven't traditionally handled stress. And, yeah, stress is 
whatever you make of it, terribly well. Sleepless nights, that's got better as I've got older because the stress is less. How do, you st- how do you cope with not being able to sleep? Because I know badly, that's an issue for a lot of people. Badly, badly. I, uh, I think I can cope with anything if I've had enough sleep and almost nothing if I haven't. Uh, so I tell my mother, when you can't sleep, think about what you would like to happen. Project hmm. into the future at what you would like. And she said, you live in fantasy land. <laughs> I can't live in fantasy land. Yeah, but, uh, I think it's important. I mean, when you talk about growing businesses and changing things, I think fantasy is important because it's using your imagination to think of things that no one else has ever thought of that creates the, those things and makes the progress. Uh, but I think... Uh, it's it's actually you, you can't solve a problem without intense focus, other than good luck, and that doesn't happen that often. The other thing to remember is a <laughs> it's an old, probably Jewish joke that uh, someone said. Uh, you know, I was feeling really bad, and he said, "Cheer up, things could get worse." So I cheered up, and sure as hell, they got worse. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, you've got to keep things in perspective. How do you reach outside the box, though? I mean, if you've got you... to remember that you know when things are bad, they'll get better. Don't get too low. Similarly, when things are that good, just remember something will go wrong. And you know yourself, Lily. <laughs> Sometimes you wake up and you're just in a bad mood for no good reason, or you're in a good mood. So it How do you change. get yourself out it of a bad change. mood? Do stuff. Do stuff. I mean, there's no point wallowing. Um, and the stuff is depending on what's there. We, one of my great delights, uh, we're very fortunate to have a, uh, a place at Red Hill, uh, which is 27 acres and largely remnant forest, and we've spent a lot of time uh, clearing it of everything that's not native to the, uh, to the, to the region, to, to the Morning Peninsula. Uh, it is a spiritual experience walking through, and particularly this past few days, spring is coming, the birds are twittering, the, the bottles are starting to bloom. Uh, Taking so you need to get breath. out, get out of yourself. Yeah, um, yeah, that's the other thing. You're not that important. Are you really? <laughs> oh, yeah, it's yes. it's amazing how you can be the centre of the world. But you, yeah, I, I've known, and unfortunately, there were some very difficult times during the '80s, the crash, and there was nothing else in the world. I so the world so closed in on me, I couldn't see anything else. I was amazed when, fortunately, we got through all that. All the other things that had happened that I hadn't seen, they didn't exist because I hadn't had my eyes open. So walk around with your eyes open, get out of yourself. So important, so important. Mm. Michael, this is a serious question. Why do you think your wife has stayed with you for 49 years? Well, one of my fortunate... One of the great things that's happened to me over many years is to have met some wonderful people, heard great stories and learnt from amazing people. Uh, is a fund manager in Sydney I know very, very well, who uh, has for many years gone to the Warren Buffett, the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting yes. in uh, Nebraska, the, um, the uh, Oracle of Omaha. And he got to know Charlie Munger, who's Warren Buffett's yes. offsider very well. He was having lunch with him one day and he said uh, to Mark, the fellow I was talking to, I was telling me a story. Yes. He said, uh, so are you married, Mark? He said, yes. He said, how long have you been married? He said, well, I guess it's been going all right. Uh, been married for 22 years. He said, oh, that's great. He said, do you know what you need to have in a wife for a long and happy marriage? Do you know what she needs? He said, I guess you're going to tell me. He said, do you think that she's beautiful? It's not that. Do you think that she's got good values? Do you think that she's rich? Do you think that she's a good mother, comes from a good family? He said, you know, 
None of those things. You know what your wife's got to have if you want to have a long and happy marriage. She's got to have very low expectations. (laughs) That's the best answer I can give you. (laughs) So very quickly to finish on a good note for you and a high note, what are some of the qualities you really appreciate in your wife? She is, for the most part, unerringly uh, cheerful and positive. She certainly cares deeply. Uh, she, you know, going back on what I just said, very, very focused on the family, uh, very, very concerned about all our well-being and, and uh, all the things we do. Uh, and and very, very much, you know, she wants everyone to be happy and to be together. And uh, in essence, uh, all, many of the same characteristics I've so admired in my mother. You know, I guess we... we that saying about you marry your mother, you marry your father. Uh, very much, you know, very positive, very caring. Michael, thank you so very, very much. Not nearly enough time. You didn't even touch on your kids, really, or um, on some.